morning. Well, next week is the official start of the class. So to those parents out there, uh, it's a start of waking up early and sleeping late and getting back to the rhythm. I can feel you. I have two kids. One is going to school. So, yeah. But rest assured, it's not the end of the world. We're starting a new series. It's called the End of the World Series. Is the world near the end, and should I be worried about it? I'd like to talk about this today, this morning. In 1971, a popular evangelist named Hal Lindsey published a book entitled The Late Great Planet Earth. Anyone read that book? Just me. At Edna, read that book. Cool. Well, he predicted in the book that the end of the world will end sometime in the 1980s. So either it didn't happen or we missed it. Because it didn't happen. I <laughs> it didn't happen. In a similar fashion, two guys wrote a fiction book. They are Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins. They have been writing, writing a series of fiction since 1995 entitled Left Behind. Anyone read the book? Oh, also, you like, you like this, this topic, end of the world, cool. Now many of us read that book. Now this, this is a book, a fiction, a story of rapture, tribulation, end times, 666, and all those scary things. And what's interesting is that people bought it, even if it's scary. People read it. Now, when we were approaching year 2000, we got confused and scared because of the Y2K bug. We all thought that the world's going to end when the computers will crash. Now, again, uh, rumor has it that the end of the world was unfortunately rescheduled sometime later. Now, right now, we have rumors of wars. Think of China and Taiwan. We have actual wars. Think of Russia and Ukraine, uh, Israel and the Palestinian Liberation Organization. We have drought in Africa. We have wildfires in California. We have flooding in China. We have earthquakes in Southeast Asia. All over the world, there are things that you read, read in the Bible that may sound like it's the end of the world. So our question is, is it the end of the world, and should I be afraid of it? Now, I want to start by painting you a picture. And what I want to do this morning is to get all these stories from the Bible and make sense how these are connected to one another. Are you ready? So we start all the way when, when Jesus went to the temple for the last time. So during the last time, last week of Jesus Christ, he entered Jerusalem. It's called the triumphal entry. We all know this, okay? Every time we preach the gospel, we preach about the triumphal entry. But, but Jesus entered the triumphal entry just like how the first king entered the triumphal entry. Let me paint you a picture. Solomon was the son of David. You know, Solomon had many sons. And they don't know at that time who will replace Solomon. In fact, many people have been, many from his sons are trying to fight over this one position, who will be the next king of Israel. But then David chose Solomon. Solomon became the one who built the temple of God. Now, 
three things about Solomon that's very important because these three things also was what Jesus did. Solomon was the legitimate son of David. When he was coronated, he was coronated and then he entered Jerusalem on a king's mule, that's second. And third, he entered the east gate. Now this is very interesting to say the least because this is exactly what Jesus did when he entered Jerusalem. When the people were shouting, Hosanna, son of David, it was Solomon they were shouting too because he's the legitimate son of David. But it's the same exact phrase when they were shouting to Jesus when he was entering Jerusalem. Hosanna, son of David. He is the son of David. He is Messiah. Second, Jesus Christ, as Solomon did, entered through the east gate of Jerusalem. Very interesting. And Solomon, just like Jesus, was riding on a king's mule. Jesus was riding a donkey. Now, what's interesting, though, this is cool, by the way. If you happen to read about this, is that the first act of Solomon was to build the temple and inaugurate the worship for the worship of Yahweh. The first thing that Jesus did when he entered Jerusalem was to go straight to the temple and decommission the temple. This is one end to another. Solomon inaugurated the worship. Jesus decommissioned the temple. This is important to understand the end of the world. Now, let me give you another picture. Genesis 1.1. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And you might be thinking, what does this heavens and earth mean? Heavens and the earth is one reality that is interlocked and overlapped in the Garden of Eden. So, you know, the ancients did not went to the moon, did not go to the moon. They did not see that the earth is round, that the earth from afar is a planet and there are many planets. They just understand that it's the earth and the heavens. That's it. And this heaven and earth, and they understand that God is in heaven and we are on earth. But they understood in Genesis 1-1 that heaven and earth has an interlock. They overlap in the Garden of Eden. Why is that? Because the presence of God is there. Of all the places, it is in the Garden of Eden that Adam and Eve meets God. Are you still with me? Okay, this is kind of easy right now. Now, this concept of heaven and earth meeting and overlapping in the Garden of Eden is transitioned all the way when Israel met God at the foot of Mount Sinai. Again, at the foot of, uh, foot of Mount Sinai, God is on top of the mountain. There was thunder and lightning and darkness. And it was a holy day, it's Sabbath day for the people. And people will meet God. Again, Mount Sinai became an overlap, an interlock of heaven and earth because God is there. This, became, uh, this came into transition in a more concrete way when God said to Moses, I will dwell in the presence. I will dwell my presence in the midst of the people. I will really physically be with you through the tabernacle. That means the heaven and earth now interlocks and overlap in the tabernacle. Why? Because the presence of God is there. In fact, when you look at the tabernacle, there's a holy place and there's the most holy place. The most holy place contains the Ark of the Covenant, the physical throne of God where there are two cherubims. It is in the tabernacle that the heaven and earth interlocks because the presence of God is there. Now come to the time of Solomon. Solomon built the temple and inaugurated the worship. On the day that he inaugurated the worship, the Bible said, if you look at 1 Kings, 
it would describe you that the presence of the Lord came down to the temple in the form of thick smoke. So they know that the presence of God is there. And when we talk about the presence of God, the phrase that they use is the glory of God. In the Hebrew, it's called Shekinah glory. God was really there in the temple. So this temple is not an ordinary building anymore. When the presence of God came, it became the residence of God. That means the temple became the concrete and permanent interlock and overlap of heaven and earth. If anyone on earth is looking to worship God, he must go to Jerusalem. He must enter the temple courts and worship God in there because heaven and earth is found in the temple of God. Are you still with me? Cool. This is, this is kind of easy right now. Now, the question is, what will happen if Israel forgets God, depart from their faith, and start to worship idols? Now, what will happen exactly is that God's presence will depart from the place and the temple becomes a building again because there's no presence of God anymore. And this prophet Isaiah prophesied about this when at the height of Israel's idolatry, God destroyed the temple. Look at Isaiah chapter 13, verses 9 through 10. It says, Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel and with wrath and fierce anger. It sounds like to me the end of the world. It says, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. Now look at this, verse 10, because this language is so sinister. It says, for the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising. The moon will not shed its light. It, it paints you a picture of an eclipse. It's an omen in heaven in the ancient days. It's like an omen, it's a natural phenomenon that only gods or the gods can do. It's like gods or the gods are saying, th this is going to be the end of the world. So Isaiah here is painting as a picture of the end of the world using the language of darkness. Let me give you a better, uh, concrete, more picture of this one. Now, the ancients understand that Again, like I said, they did not go to the moon, so they did not know that the earth is, is round and, you know, a planet. They just know that it's the earth and the heaven. That's it. But the language that was used in Genesis is very interesting. In the in beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Okay, cool. But it also says that before God created everything, the earth was empty and void. If you're reading the original, you would read tohu vavohu. It has nothing to do with tofu. It's not yummy. Tohu vavohu, it means dark, empty, and chaotic. It, very interesting because the ancients understood that waters represent or symbolize chaos. That's why you read in verse 2, the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. There's water in the beginning. Why? It represents chaos. So it's dark, it's empty, it's formless, it's void, it's chaotic. That's the beginning. If the creation of heavens and earth is the Garden of Eden, that's the overlap of Garden Eden, and then it's transferred to Sinai, and then it's transferred to the tabernacle, and finally in the time of Solomon, it's transferred to the temple. The concept of destroying heaven and earth is the concept of destroying the temple of God. Now, this is the smoothest transition I can do because this is where it points to. Now, look at it this way. Anyone seen a how to make pottery? Anyone? So first, cool. First, the potter gets a clay. It's formless. It's not void, but it's formless. It's a lump of clay. 
and he puts it in a platform, he adds water, he spins it, and then comes out the pot. If he's not happy with the pot, what he will do is he will smash the pot into, back into its shape, formless. What God did in Genesis 1-1 is this. It was formless and void and empty and chaotic, and then he formed in six days the heavens and the earth. The temple, if it's a representation of the heavens and the earth, if it's destroyed, it goes back to its place, chaotic, empty, void, formless. Are you with me? This is how the ancients understood the destruction of the temple. Now, prophet Isaiah was prophesying about the destruction of the temple, the residence of God. If we put this in perspective, in 586 BC, Nebuchadnezzar marched to Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. In other words, in the mind of Isaiah, the end of the world is the destruction of the first temple of Solomon. That is the end of the world. Anybody not breathing right now? Okay, cool. I can feel you. I can feel you. Now, when I was growing up, I also thought that the end of the world is, you know, it's going to be a nuclear catastrophe. But then I was, I was trying to understand this and, this, and I came up with this one. It's not an original for me, of course. I researched on this and, and all those things. But the Jewish understood the end of the world in a different way. Now, I understand that some people are emotional, especially the, the men. You know, it's hard for us to, <laughs> to recover from emotion. So um, if a, a man likes a woman, he courts the girl, right? Sa Tagalog, diniligawan niya. And then... He tries to win, but if the girl doesn't like him, he says, she says no. In Tagalog, we call it nabasted. For the men who felt the nabasted, they were rejected by women, it's like a personal end of the world. And you know what? Uh, when I was growing up, I had a neighbor who committed suicide because he was rejected. For him, it was the end of the world. I'm not putting the blame and guilt on women. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that it's a personal thing. You know, in China right now, according to many news, there are numbers, number of Chinese citizens who jump from uh, the top of their condominiums, uh, especially beginning from pandemic because of bankruptcy. They're jumping from off the uh, roof of their condominiums. It's very scary for them. Maybe this is the end of the world. But for the Jews, the end of the world has something to do with the destruction of the temple. Let me give you another prophet so that they will agree on this. Ezekiel is a prophet who was brought to Assyria on the invasion of Assyrians. And while he was there, he had a vision from God. And his vision, he saw the presence of God. He was given the painted vision of God. Ezekiel chapter 11, verses 22 to 23. It says, Then the cherubim... By cherubim, we understand it's, you know, the figures on top of the Ark of the Covenant, the throne of God. So then the cherubim lifted their wings and the wheels beside them. And the glory of God, the glory of God is just kind of glory, the presence of God. The glory of God of Israel was over them. And the glory of the Lord, again the Shekinah, went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain that is on the east side of the city. Now stay with me here because this is very important as we relate it to Jesus Christ. There's only one mountain on the east side of Jerusalem. That is the Mount of Olives. 
Why is it Mount of Olives, Pastor? Because there are many olives in there. That's the only explanation. Now, let me tell you something that's cool. Maybe you have read this many times, but you have not related it to one another. After Jesus Christ entered Jerusalem, he went straight to the temple, decommissioned the temple by getting rid of the money changers. And then there's a series of sermons from Matthew chapter 21, and then it ends with Matthew 23. At Matthew 24, you can pick up that there's another setting where Jesus went to. Right after he made series of sermons inside Jerusalem, he went out of Jerusalem and he sat on the Mount of Olives. Just like the Holy Spirit in time of Ezekiel in his vision from the temple, the Holy Spirit of the presence of God sat on the Mount of Olives. This is very uncanny. Let me read to you Matthew 24, verse 3. It says, As he sat on the Mount of Olives at Jesus, the disciples came to him privately saying, that very interestingly, their topic was the end of the world. Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Why are they talking about the end of the age if the temple was already destroyed? Because they were able to rebuild the temple of God. This is the second temple we're talking about, the temple of Herod. Now, in case you missed this, what I'm trying to say is that there is a similarity between what happened in Ezekiel's vision to what Jesus did exactly during this time. After he decommissioned the temple, he went straight and sat on the Mount of Olives, and then he explained the end of the world, just like what Ezekiel had in his vision. Let me continue with this, verse 37 to 39. He said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. Now, all the while, when you read the Bible and you read Mount Zion, the city of God, it's supposed to give you hope. It's, to it's supposed to give you something, paint you a picture of something nice. Not this one. Jesus said, this Jerusalem is a city that kills the prophets and stone those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing? It, it gives us a, a picture of what God did in the wilderness, like an eagle who gathers the, the hen. But Israel is not willing, not willing to change, not willing to come to be rescued. Verse 38, it says, See, your house is left to you desolate. And by house, he was talking about the temple. There's no other house. It's not my house. It's a temple. Verse 39, For I tell you, you will not see me again, this is literal, until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, the moment he entered Jerusalem, this is what the people were shouting. Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus Christ is saying, oh, 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 you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. What he's trying to say is that he will disappear. And then he will come back when they are ready and willing to be rescued again. Now, the context of this, again, is about the temple. When he talks about the house, the context is the temple of God. So when the disciples were asking, when is the end of the age? They're asking, when is the temple to be destroyed? Are we clear on that? This is easy right now. So Jesus Christ, like Ezekiel, was prophesying the destruction of the temple. And what we can see here is that the second temple 
is again still the symbol of the space where heaven and earth meet, where God and people meet. So therefore, the prophesying of the destruction of the temple for the disciples of Jesus is equivalent to the end of the world, just like the first temple. Again, the destruction of the temple is the going back to the original formless, void, empty, chaotic, and dark. Uh, Josephus, the Jewish historian, always have always painted the picture of what happened when the Romans destroyed the temple. When Josephus was narrating how it happened, he said that there were three years that they have barricaded Jerusalem. They could not enforce, they could not win, but on the third year, the Romans broke through, and the moment they broke through, they raped women, they killed children, and they tortured men in the most savage way. This sort of paints us the picture of what the end of the world looks like to them, to the Jewish people. Going back to Jesus, so Jesus left the temple, sat at the Mount of Olives, and he began talking about the end of the world, the destruction of the temple. Look at verse 3. It says, Matthew 24, 3, As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be? When will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age, the destruction of the temple? Now, Jesus responded very interestingly, he said in verse 4. And Jesus answered, see that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. Now, this is a perfect and simple way to know if someone is leading you astray. If he claims to be Jesus Christ, is leading you astray. And if I began to preach, I am now the Christ, you follow me, I'm leading you astray. It's as simple as that. Well, funny thing is that there are many people who have appeared and are now still alive who claim to be the new Jesus Christ. We have one back there in the Philippines. He's got a new kingdom. And it's serious. This is so easy. People should know. He's leading them astray. We have representatives also here in America, by the way. We have one in Korea, in South Korea. Uh, Sang Myung Moon uh, claims to be the new Jesus Christ, but he already died. There are many other people who claim to be the Christ, the Messiah. If anyone claims to be the Messiah, not Jesus Christ, he is leading people astray. It's, it's easy as that. And then in verse 6 it says, And you will hear wars, rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. By the end, he's not talking about the end of the world as we know it. The end is the destruction of the temple. And then he said, For a nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Now we're talking about all these things, like I mentioned what's happening in China, in Africa, in, in Southeast Asia. These things have happened before, and Jesus Christ saying this, Matthew 24, verses 4 to 8, has something to do with the destruction of the temple, not the end of the world like how we understand it. Destruction of the temple. Now, he used the metaphor, the birth pains. Uh, for first-time couples who are uh, pregnant, when the, the pain starts, they will rush to the hospital and the doctors will check. And sometimes the doctor will say false alarms. 
which means they will be sent back home. It's not yet time. See, the pains, the labor pains, are just prerequisites before the end of the world, the destruction of the temple. All the rumors of wars, or the famines and the earthquakes, and the actual wars, and the false Messiah are but series of events that will happen or take place before the end of the temple, before the destruction of the temple. So because we're not Jewish experts in history and culture, we might think that this passage has something to do with us. Good news is that it's nothing to do with us. It's something to do with the destruction of the temple, physical temple in Jerusalem. Now, how do we know that? Verse 32, it says, from the fig tree learn its lesson as soon as its branch becomes tender and put out its leaves. You know that summer is near, so another allusion. But then in verse 33, he became more clear, more literal. He said, when you see all these things, all these things means rumors of wars, wars, famines, earthquakes, all those crazy things. You know that he is near at the very gates. I mean, destruction. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Now watch this. Heaven and earth will pass away. Heaven and earth, the overlap of of heaven and earth, the temple, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. This is a very clear indication that Jesus Christ is pointing to the destruction of the temple. And what he's saying is that this generation, my generation, in this lifetime, in this lifetime, this will happen. Let me put you in perspective. I mean this in perspective. So Jesus Christ approximately died in 33 AD. The Romans came and marched to Jerusalem AD 70 and destroyed the temple. So that means there are some 40 years of famines and wars and earthquakes and false messiah that will take place before the destruction of the temple. And all that will happen in his generation because he died at 33. So he was talking about in his generation. That's the idea here. So the end of the world, in other words, for the Jewish people, it's the destruction of the temple. But the question is, what does the destruction of the temple mean to us as a church today? Now, we, also, we said from the beginning that Jesus Christ decommissioned the temple. You remember when he was crucified, the curtain on the temple was torn into two. Why is that? It's another proof of decommissioning the temple. Like a seal is broken. A seal is broken. Hmm, sounds like revelation to me. Broken seals. Okay. Yeah, we're going there. But the idea here is that this is becoming more concrete. So Jesus Christ uh, dealt with the money changers. During his crucifixion, the temple was torn into two. In AD 70, it was physically destroyed by the Romans. Now, I'm not trying to be anti-Semitic here, but what does this mean to me? What does this mean to you as a church, the destruction of the temple? There's one answer. It's good news. Why is it that the destruction of the temple is good news for us? See, in order for God to set up the new temple, he must first destroy the first one. That's what's explained in Hebrews chapter 10. If the old stature is standing, he cannot establish the, the new one. If, if God is to establish a new temple, he must destroy the old one. This is what happened when Jesus Christ decommissioned the temple. Again, why is the temple special? 
The only thing, the only reason why it's special is because the presence of God is there. Nothing more. It's not because the temple was great and grand, the stones are huge and, you know, all those things. It's because the, the presence of God was there. And if the presence of God is not there anymore, therefore it's just an ordinary building. And that's why the Romans were able to destroy the temple. Why? Because God established a new temple. Do you remember when Jesus Christ was still alive, he was saying, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it? I keep asking myself, when did Jesus Christ build this church? Did he build the temple? No, he did not. What is this church he's talking about? Acts chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, before he ascended to heaven, he told his disciples, stay in Jerusalem, I will send the Holy Spirit. This is the same spirit that you find in Genesis 1, verse 2. The spirit of God was hovering over the waters. The spirit of God. This is the same spirit that filled the temple of Solomon. Holy Spirit. This is the Holy Spirit, the Trinity. You believe in that, right? So this same spirit is what Jesus said, I will send you the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 2, verse 1 to 4. This is very interesting. It says, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. It's not a church, it's just a building. It's probably a house. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. Think of how the Red Sea was split into two, a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Think of Solomon during the inauguration of the temple. And divided tongues as the fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. Think about the, the cloud by day and fire by night during the wilderness for 40 years. This is the manifestations of the Spirit of God. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit. The building is not just filled with the Holy Spirit. They, the people, were filled with the Holy Spirit. And they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. If the first temple of Solomon was filled with the Holy Spirit, therefore it became the residence of God. And in Acts, the people were filled with the Holy Spirit. Therefore, the people became the church because they were filled with the Spirit of God. Are you following me here? The language that was used by Luke was that it filled the entire house. The difference is that in Solomon, it's only the building that was filled. In Acts, it was the people that was filled by the Holy Spirit, not the building. This is the explanation when Jesus Christ said, I will build my church. He did not mean building, he meant people. I will build my church. See, the original task of the building of the temple was to bless all the nations of the world. That's the original plan. You know, when Jesus Christ entered the temple, he went to the courts and he saw money changers. The money changers have been a corrupt system during the time of Jesus Christ. That's why he lashed out to them and he drove them away. Money changers. Where are they? Where are the money changers? They are on the courts of women. It's also called called the courts of the Gentiles. Supposedly, there is a space for the Gentiles to come in and pray to Yahweh. There's a place for everyone. And yet, because the money changers are positioned in there, the Gentiles cannot come in. They were not able to fulfill their task to bring the blessings to all the nations. And by establishing a new temple, the church, we are given the commission now to reach the whole world and give the blessings of God to all nations. Because the temple cannot do it, God destroyed it, 
and gave it to us, the church. And what's very interesting is that what Jesus is saying is that I will build my church. It's, it's not because we are holy and not sinning anymore. In fact, the church is sometimes lazy and selfish people, but the Bible said we are sanctified. We are sanctified and we are being sanctified because the Holy Spirit lives in us. Have you ever wondered why Jesus Christ said, where two or three are gathered in my name, I am in the midst of them? It's the same thing as the temple. Where two or three are gathered in the temple, God is there. We are in the new temple of God. If we meet together, whether two or three, God is in our midst. He dwells in us because we are the new temple of God. We are the church. And then Jesus Christ said, pray this way. His kingdom come, his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What he's saying is that when you are praying, you are the convergence, the overlapping, the interlocking of heaven and earth. You have the Holy Spirit in you. You are the new temple. Isn't Paul who said that we are the temple of God? See, this is all becoming clear. The old temple must go because we are the new temple of God. And then he said this, Matthew 24, verse 14. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And the end will come. Now, again, the end here is not the end of the world in a catastrophic way. The end of the world here is the destruction of the temple, still in the context of the destruction of the temple. What Jesus Christ is saying is that in his generation, the gospel will be preached to all nations. Did that ever, ever happen? Now, I understand that there are people who are doing mass evangelisms because they want to usher in, they want to speed up the return of Jesus Christ because they think if the whole the gospel reaches the whole world, then Jesus will come back and then the end of the world. Now, there are people who want the end of the world, but I think they have a wrong interpretation on this because to Jesus, the end of the world here is the destruction of the temple. But then what Jesus is saying is that in his generation, the, the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed to all nations, a testimony to all nations. What's interesting is that the gospel of the kingdom reached the all nations in the time of Jesus before the destruction of the temple. Let's put this in perspective. Apostle Paul, the 13th apostle, because Judas resigned, committed suicide, Apostle Paul became the 13th. He went through a series of missionary journeys together with his co-workers, Barnabas, Silas, and Timothy. Uh, he went to the empire of Rome. He did not go to the Philippines, did not, did not go to Australia or New Zealand or America, did not go to other parts of Europe or Russia. He concentrated on the Roman Empire because in the understanding in the language of the ancients, when they say, the end of the world, they say they mean the destruction of the temple. And when they say the whole world, they don't mean the whole globe. They mean the known world, which is the Roman Empire. So what Jesus Christ is saying is that before the destruction of the temple, the gospel will be preached to the whole Roman Empire. And that's exactly what Paul did during his missionary journeys. He reached as far as Rome. He died in AD 60, 10 years before the destruction of the temple. Hal Lindsay, Tam LeHay, and Jared Jen Jenkins espouse an idea that the gospel is preached to all the world and then the end will come. See, if, if you 
understand Matthew 24 in a linear, con consecutive manner, then we will get confused. Whenever you, you read then, 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 it doesn't mean that there's a consecutive events. Sometimes it does simultaneously, the events. Where do we fit in all this? What this means is that all the way from the beginning, from Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, all the way to Abraham, Abraham to David, David to Jesus, and Jesus to us, we are continuing the story of creation. It's not just for the Jewish people anymore. It's now for us. Jesus Christ said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. See, when, when the Roman emperor goes to visit other countries, he will be given state uh, privileges. He will be given celebrations. There will be red carpets and all those celebrations. And he will be paraded as he enters the city. And when he goes back to Rome, he will be given with given celebrations and festivals. They will sing of his triumphs and victory. Because in their understanding, in the Roman understanding, he is bringing peace and prosperity. This is called parousia. Jesus Christ also mentioned this. He said, I will come back. Parousia. So the, he's painting as a picture that he is coming back like a Roman emperor, but now not like a Roman emperor, but the emperor of the whole world. He's coming back. And the end of the world really, for us, is not bad news. It's good news. It, we may suffer persecution and wars and famine and pestilence. All these things will continue to happen, but it's not bad news. It's good news because the king is coming back. Perusia. Whenever we drink the cup and eat the bread, we say Maranatha. It means may the Lord come soon. How soon? August 14, 2022. No, no, no. The Bible never said that. Okay, don't believe it. The Bible never said that. The disciples were pressing Jesus, when are you coming back? He did not answer. He didn't give them definite dates. No, but he gave them signs. We have to read the signs. And for now, for me, I, I don't care about the signs. What I know is that when Jesus comes, and he can come anytime, will be good news can he come tomorrow yes maybe i don't know can he come next year maybe I don't, there's no specific date there's just signs our question is is it the end of the world for us uh, if it is should i be worried my answer is no it's a cause for celebration and not fear and I am very excited how this will come about. You see, if, if you are, uh, belong to a family where your niece or your wife or your friend is giving birth, you're staying outside of the delivery room and you're anticipating until you know, the baby is shown to you. This is like us right now. We're anticipating you know, birth pains. We're anticipating the coming of Jesus. Are you excited about Jesus? It's like, I have plans, Pastor. I have plans. I, I have scheduled vacation next year. Please, no, no. I still have to go to Europe. Bucket list. I mean, God can come anytime. And we have to anticipate that because that's the, the most extravagant thing that can happen to our lives. 
the coming back of Jesus Christ. What do we do for now? For now we wait. What the old temple did not do is to bring the good news of the kingdom to all nations. What we can do right now is to do that, to bring the gospel to all the kingdoms to the whole world. How do we do that? What maybe we can do is what maybe we can commission the Ichika family, bring them to Sahara Desert in Africa. Maybe. Or maybe we can send, I don't know, uh, Kui Edwin and Ati Aida to Canada or, wow, that's luxurious. Maybe somewhere in, in Timbuktu, I don't know. That's how we reach the whole world. But you know what? We can do it here. We can invite people from all nations of the whole world because they are all here. We can do it here. The church in the time of the New Testament is not a monolithic church. It's not one, one, one ethnicity. It's not just one race. It's Jews and Gentiles. No women or men. No slaves or free. It's a combination of everything. God has already taken out all the restrictions. You see, in Revelation, there's a vision again by John. And he saw people from all tongues and nations and tribes, they were worshiping God. This is the picture of the church, what this church would be. So I'm always saying, we're not the Filipino church. No, we're not. We're an international church because that is what the church should look like. Would you say amen to that? Let's stand up and pray. <sighs> Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege of hearing your words. And Father, I pray as we meditate on your words and the words of Jesus Christ, will you allow our hearts not to be troubled, not to be worried because of the rumors of wars and famines and earthquake and hurricanes and inflation and the problems that we have here in the United States. Father, I pray that you will fill our hearts as how you filled it with the Holy Spirit with much anticipation and joy. Allow us, Father, to celebrate day after day your goodness in our lives. Allow us, Father, to transcend from our problems and see how you are blessing us and how we can reach other people for you. Father, use every opportunity in 24 hours of our lives to reach out for you, just like how you intend us to be, your church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against us. In Jesus' name we pray.